Well, good morning, uh, Inglewood, and I know that I was not supposed to be the one preaching here today, and I wish I weren't. Uh, Dr. Jim Shaddix was scheduled to be here, but he is in the ICU unit at Wake Med, having gone through brain surgery on Friday. Tuesday, uh, he began to show some signs that uh, they thought was a stroke. He was taken to the hospital and they discovered he had a golf ball sized tumor uh, in his brain. We've also discovered since then there's another area uh, that's going to require surgery soon. Uh, the surgery on Friday went for about four hours. Uh, they're pleased uh, with what took place and, and they're encouraged. Uh, but he's still in the ICU unit and uh, this morning in particular uh, they were having difficulty waking him up. And so I want us to pray for him before we move on into the message. I know that this is a praying church. I know you love our seminary, which means you love our faculty. And there's not a finer man on the planet, not a finer preacher of God's word than Dr. Shaddix. And so let's go to the Lord and just lift him up this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church. It is a part of the Southeastern family, and we are a part of it. And I thank you, Lord, that they love us, and they pray for us, they support us, they send students to us. And I'm grateful that we can come together at this time as brothers and sisters and intercede and come to the throne of grace for Dr. Shaddix. I thank you so much for Jim and his precious wife and children. What a gift he is to the body of Christ, to our school, and really to the entire Southern Baptist Convention and Evangelical World. And Lord, I would pray that you would sovereignly heal him. You are the great physician. You are the God who heals. And we would ask that if it be in your will, that you would do that supernaturally, do it through the doctors and medical means. But Lord, we would ask for that. At the same time, Lord, you're God and we're not. And so we entrust uh, Jim into your hands because no one loves him more than you do. No one cares for him more than you do. And as we uh, sang just a moment ago, the battle's already won. And Lord, as I was talking to a dear friend this week, we're all someday, and if you tarry your coming, uh, going to pass away. But we will someday also be perfectly and eternally healed because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we claim that victory, and we claim that for Dr. Shaddix, and ask that you indeed would take good care of him now, and that your perfect will would be accomplished in his life for your glory and for his good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me say one more word before I get to the text. I'm so grateful for a church that believes in the sanctity of human life. Uh, I have voted in every election I could since I was 18. I'm 67, so I've been voting for almost 50 years. My point is we operate in the pro-life movement, both on the personal level and the political level. On the political level, I don't mind putting my cards on the table. I never have, nor will I ever vote for a pro-choice candidate, never. You say, well, then you're a one voter, uh, one issue voter. No, but that uh, particular position, where you stand on it, is gonna tell me a lot about where you stand on other things as well, and if you doubt me, then just do your homework and examine various candidates and you'll see that there's a web of issues that come together because of a particular worldview. And so politically, I'm active. 
Politically, I vote, but personally, my wife and I support two different crisis pregnancy ministries. We've done that since we got married 45 years ago, and we will continue to do that till the Lord calls us home because we believe that much in the sanctity of life, and we believe that lives need to be saved. We won a great battle a year and a half ago uh, with the Dobbs decision, but the work is not done, and it's not done in North Carolina. So you keep praying, you keep supporting, you keep voting, and we'll claim that God indeed will have his will and way, and maybe someday abortion absolutely will be unthinkable across the land. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, I want you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to give our attention to verses 1 through 3, a passage that I've simply entitled, Run in God's Race. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, reading down through verse 3, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. Now, uh, I teach Bible interpretation at the seminary and at our college. And one of the things we teach when we teach Bible interpretation is that look for words that appear more than once. Look for repetition. Well, it's very clear that the author of Hebrews had a particular kind of race in mind because some form of the word endurance appears in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. So again, the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despised the shame of it, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I believe if the Bible were being written today, we would probably find in it illustrations from football and basketball and baseball, maybe even golf and tennis and certainly track and field because when you come to the Bible, you discover that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to use illustrations from the world of athletics to teach us about the Christian life. Several times, Paul refers to the Christian life as a boxing match. In Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us it's like wrestling. But here in the book of Hebrews and other places in the Bible, the Christian life is compared to a race. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, I believe the author of Hebrews has a very particular race in mind because he tells us it is a race that we run with endurance. In other words, the Christian life is not a sprinter's race. It's not even an intermediate distance race. In fact, if the Bible, again, were being written today, he might have even used the word the marathon. A 26-mile, 385-yard race, the longest race still run in the Olympics. And so what we need to understand this morning is when God saves us, He puts us in a race. But this race is not a sprinter's race. It is a long-distance race. And therefore, if you and I are going to begin well, run well, and finish well, we need to understand the nature of the race. It's a marathon. And we need to have a strategy, a game plan, for how we can run this race and finish the race well. Look, again... I'm now 67 years old. The idea 
and the goal of finishing the race well becomes more and more important to me with every passing day. You see, it's one thing to run the race well for a season. It's another thing to finish the race well. And how do we do that? Three ideas naturally emerge from this text of Scripture. Number one, the Bible tells us to find encouragement as we run. To find encouragement as we run. He begins, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Again, uh, hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, the therefore is there for a reason. What's it doing? It's connecting chapter 12 with chapter 11. Well, what's chapter 11 about? It's a chapter that gives us great men and women of faith who've already run the race, they've already crossed the finish line, and they are there as a source of encouragement for you and for me to stay in the race and to finish the race. Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, he uses the imagery of the Colosseum. Uh, you and I are not in the stands, we're on the track. And the grandstands are filled with men and women of faith, and they are there to encourage you and me to keep on running and to stay in the race. Now, if you go back to chapter 11, and we don't have time to look at all 40 verses, but if you go back to chapter 11, I believe you find at least two different categories of encouragers for you and me to stay in the race. First of all, the Bible says we should be encouraged by what we could call the earthly winners. Go back with me to chapter 11 and just look at what it said beginning with verse 32. Now, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, and now he is going to list no less than 10 extraordinary accomplishments of these men and women of faith. Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. And women even received back their dead by resurrection. Now, brothers and sisters, any way you look at that category of winners, these things are extraordinary. Uh, these things are supernatural. And listen to me very carefully. These men and women were very normal people like you and me. They did these extraordinary things, not because of how great they are, but how great their God is. Their God allowed them to do the unbelievable, the extraordinary, that which cannot be explained by mere human ingenuity. And listen to me this morning. It is quite possible that some of you in this room fall into the category of what we call the earthly winners. God has a purpose and plan for your life. And you're going to do unbelievable things for the glory of God and the building of His kingdom. Is it because you're smart? No, because you ain't. <laughs> Is it because you're unbelievably gifted and talented? No. God loves to work through the nobodies. That's the way God does things. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at the end, and He makes that very, very clear. No, God is sovereign. And for some of us in this room, God has a plan that will allow us by faith to do that which cannot be explained by any other means than our God did it. But I stopped reading right in the middle of verse 35. He's in heaven now, but if Paul Harvey were here, he would say, now, Danny, you got to tell them what the rest of the story. 
And when you read the rest of the story, you find a second category of encouragers, the ones I call the heavenly winners. You say, why? Well, look at what it says there beginning in verse 35 in the middle. But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, and they were destituted, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But now look at the first part of verse 39. All these commended through their faith. Some of them, no. Most of them, no. All of these commended by God for their faith. Now, let's be fair. From the world's perspective, this second group must have played the fool. Uh, this second group trusted a God who did not deliver. Now, that may be the world's perspective, but that is not God's perspective. And again, hear me well this morning. It is not hard to trust God when you're on the mountaintop. Anybody can do that. But when you're in the valley, when you're in the ICU unit having had brain surgery on Friday, you're not really sure about the future. Those are the days when we find out whether our faith is real or not. I've been at Southeastern Seminary this week, 20 years. When I'd only been there a few months, in fact, I have the date written down in my notes, March the 15th, 2004. I received a phone call from some friends informing me that four of our wonderful IMB missionaries that were in Iraq had been brutally murdered. Uh, David McDonald, Karen Watson, and a couple named Larry and Jean Elliott. Now, some of you might know that name. You say, why? Because they're North Carolinians. They're graduates of Southeastern Seminary. They had served with the IMB for many years in Central South America. They were at retirement age, but, you know, they had a biblical perspective. You don't ever retire from God's work. Oh, he may set you aside to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of study, but you never retire, and they were still in good health. And so they, they allowed themselves to, again, be assigned to the Middle East, and they went to Iraq where they only served for a very short time when they were brutally murdered. Well, at that particular time, they had a son in the area by the name of Scott. Scott uh, Elliott attended the same church we attend now, the Wake Crossroads Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so when I heard what had happened to his mom and dad, I called him. I said, Scott, I just want you to know that we're so sorry about what we've heard about your mom and dad, and we're praying for you guys over here. And I just want to just check in and see how you're doing. And he said, well, Dr. Aiken, we're actually doing okay. Oh, we're crying because we are going to miss mom and dad, but we're also rejoicing because they're with Jesus, and that's what they always long for. And then he told me a story. I've never forgotten it. He said, Dr. Aiken, I got an email this morning from a man. He says he's an atheist. And he wrote just to tell me that he had heard about what happened to my parents, and he was sorry. And then he said at the end of his email, isn't it a shame that your mom and dad died for no good reason? Now, he said, Dr. Aiken, I didn't get mad. I mean, he's an atheist. So 
So why would I get mad at someone that doesn't even believe there's a God? But I did write him back. And I thanked him for his kindness in writing to express his condolences. But then I said at the very end of my email, let me though say one other thing. My mom and dad did not die for no good reason. And then he said, I told him this, and I have thought about this, brothers and sisters, I think 10,000 times over and over and over because I'm so convicted by what Scott wrote. He wrote him back and he said, sir, my mom and dad had such a great trust and confidence in God's plan for their life. Had they known in advance that going to Iraq would mean their death, they would have still gone anyway. And I've asked myself many times, would you have done that, Danny? Knowing beforehand that you're going to die for serving Jesus. You may be imprisoned or tortured or mistreated in some way. Would you still trust Him anyway? Folks, all I know is this. A God who gave His best can be trusted with all the rest. And God gave us His Son, and we can trust Him in the details of our life, whatever that may be. And there's a whole bunch of encouragers out there in the Bible and people like Larry and Gene Elliott that say to you and to me, don't you give up, don't you get discouraged, and no, you stay in the race. God will be with you every step of the way. So we find encouragement as we run. But then secondly, the Bible also says we should focus on the essentials as we run. And I believe there are three of them that we see very clearly in verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, number one, let us run cleanly, lay aside every weight. Secondly, let us run with confidence, lay aside also sin, which clings so closely. And thirdly, let us run with consistency, run the race with endurance, that race that is set before us. Now, let me speak to them very quickly. Number one, run cleanly, lay aside every weight. Strip off and get rid of anything that can weigh you down and slow you down and keep you from running your best for Jesus. I used to be a runner. In fact, when I was in seminary uh, back in the uh, uh, 1980s, the early 1980s, I ran a marathon, the, uh, the Dallas Marathon back in 1980s called the White Rock Marathon. And I continued to run uh, pretty regularly for a number of years. And one day I had come home from the church that we were serving uh, in the Dallas area. And I was going to go out and run. So I went upstairs and I was taking off my, my suit and my clothes. And my youngest son, Timothy, uh, who at that time was about four years old, came into the bedroom. And my, my youngest son always watched me like a hawk. He still does, actually. He's just, you know, wherever I went, he'd go and like I'd put on a suit in the morning. He'd go outside and, and play on the swing set in a suit. Drove his mother crazy, but daddy wears a suit, I wear a suit. So he comes up into the bedroom and he's watching me as I take all of my clothes off. And I had put on a t-shirt and I was putting on my, my frilly nylon running shorts. And he looks at me and he says, daddy, you took off your underwear. You didn't put any back on. And I said, well, uh, no, son, I, I didn't. He said, well, why? And I said, and I was thinking very quickly, I said, well, well, running shorts are like swimming trunks. They've got underwear, a brief, they've got underwear inside of them. And being a typical little four-year-old, he said, well, I'd like to see. 
So I took them off and I handed them to him and he took them and he looked at them for a few moments and put them up like this and gave them back to me. And he said, I don't see any underwear in there, daddy. And I did what dads often do. I said, well, son, take daddy's word for it. There's underwear in there. Now you go play. I got things to do. And I sent him out of the bedroom. Well, those of you in this room uh, this morning that are parents, you've learned over the years, like I did, that our children often pay no attention to what we say. They always pay attention to what we do. So about two weeks later, on a sunny morning, just like this, we went to church. And uh, my wife, Charlotte, being the sweet, wonderful wife and mother that she is, was getting the boys dressed, and she got Timothy dressed first, and she was then working on Paul and John and Nate. And without saying a word to us, Timothy goes upstairs. He takes off his shoes. He takes off his pants. He takes off his underwear. Puts his pants back on, puts his shoes back on. Never says a word to us about this. And we go to church. Well, later... I would learn to my eternal horror <laughs> that shortly after dropping him off in his four-year-old preschool room, the following conversation took place. Miss Terry, who Tim loved like a mama, came over and gave him a big old hug like she always did. And she stepped back and she said, well, Timothy, sweetheart, how are you doing today? And he looked up with a big old smile and he said, I'm great, Miss Terry. I don't have any underwear on. My daddy doesn't wear underwear, and I don't wear underwear either. <laughs> now, let me make uh, something clear. I do wear underwear. <laughs> I have it on today. You will accept it by faith and not by sight, okay? Now, I bet you're thinking, well, I bet, big boy, the next time you went out to run, you wore your underwear. Well, actually, no. If I'm going to go out and run a 5K race, that's 3.1 miles. A 10K race, that's 6.2 miles. A marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. No, 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 no. I'm going to run as lightly and cleanly and unencumbered as I possibly can so that I can run the race best. And here's the deal, folks. The, the, the lesson's so clear. There, there, most of you in this room, not all, I would never assume that. But most of you in this room, you're a Christian. You've been born again. You know when you repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ. And by all of that, you're in the race. But here's the question. How good are you running? How well are you running? Is it possible that over the years you've allowed some weights, some stuff, some junk, to slide into and slip into your life, and now you're not running the race, you're hardly walking the race. And folks, listen to me now, stay with me. I realize that weights can be sinful things. But I also know that weights can be good things. Good things that get in the way of the best and most important things. I was on a committee about now, 15 years ago, to study the Southern Baptist Convention, and our 45,000 churches just to see where we were and what we might do to, to get moving forward and moving better in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission. And you know what I discovered and what that committee's discovered? Southern Baptist churches don't do bad things. We, we really don't. We, we do good things. 
But we also discover that some of them are doing so many, 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 many good things. They're no longer doing the most important things. A lot of churches doing a lot of good things that are not on mission for King Jesus. Great Commission is not their priority. Getting the gospel to the end of the earth and across North America, not their priority. Studying the Word of God, I mean in depth, and being well to think like a Christian in terms of a worldview and knowing both what you believe and why you believe. Uh, a lot of churches not there. Doing good stuff, oh yeah. But sometimes <clears throat> the good can get in the way of the best. And we've got to get rid of those weights that may slow us down. We run cleanly, but we also run with confidence. He said, not only do we lay aside every weight, but we also lay aside, and the ESV makes a mistake here. I'm going to address it. We lay aside sin, which clings so closely. Now, most translations will have before the word sin, the word the, the sin. And I think they made a mistake because I do think that the author of Hebrews has a very specific sin in mind that can weigh down and slow down every single one of us. You say you think it's the same sin for everybody. I think it absolutely is the same sin for everybody. Well, you say, well, what do you think the sin is? It's the sin of unbelief. Unbelief. You say, whoa, time out, time out. Are you telling me that you think a born-again, blood-bought believer can be guilty of unbelief? I think most are guilty of unbelief. You see, many of us think like this. I can trust Jesus to get me to heaven, but I can't trust Him to get me through the day. So we try to do it in our own strength, in our own power. And no wonder we fall flat on our face because we can't do it. But you see, unbelief is very insidious. It slips into our lives and we don't even realize it's there because unbelief, listen to me, unbelief says something like this. For me to trust Jesus, for me to stay in the race, for me to continue with God. Now listen, I need the Lord. Plus, and once you add that plus sign, I do not care how you fill in the blank. You now live in the world of unbelief. I need God plus my health. You live in unbelief. I need God plus my mate. You live in unbelief. I need God plus my home. You live in unbelief. You add anything to the Lord Jesus and you now have moved into the world of unbelief. And you see, what we need to be is like Job, who said of our God, though he slay me, I will still trust in him. And you and I need to have the radical faith that the world cannot explain that says, if I have Jesus, I have all and everything I will ever need. And you run the race with absolute radical confidence in him. So you run the race cleanly, you run the race with confidence, but thirdly, you got to run the race with consistency. He says there, and let us run with endurance, with steadfastness, with perseverance, that race that is set before us. I love to say it this way, God is not impressed with shooting star Christians. Oh, they go up and burn really bright for a night, 
And then they vanished into the midnight darkness, never to be seen again. No, God is not impressed with you running the race well for a year, for a decade, for a couple of decades. No, He's impressed when you run the race faithfully year after year after year after year after year. That's why, and I've been saying this for a long time, my heroes in the faith, uh, there are not many in the category of teenagers or 20s or 30s, or 40s, or 50s, or 60s, and I can keep going. No, my heroes are men and women who are now in their 70s and their 80s, and by God's grace, some even in their 90s. And what are they doing? They're still running. They're still in the race. They're still trusting Jesus every step of the way. And that's how you run the race well to the finish line. So the Bible says we find encouragement. The Bible says we need to focus on the essentials. And finally, the Bible says we need to follow the example as we run. And we're not surprised, are we, that the author of Hebrews gives us the very best example of all. He gives us the example of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 2, he says, as you run this race, just look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And as you run this race, verse 3, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. Think about it. It's very simple, isn't it? Look and think. Look and think. Look at it with me as we close. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter. I really like the old King James, the author and finisher of faith. He gets you in the race. He gets you to the finish line. And look at that word again, looking. It's a present tense participle. It, it, the word itself means to gaze at. Uh, the idea is you've got blinders on. All you can see is what is in front of you, and all you're looking at is the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I still think the best way to illustrate it is what happens when you get married. I married my wonderful wife, Charlotte, on May the 27th, 1978. I still remember the date, and guys, you need to remember that date too, all right? By the way, February 14th is coming too. Don't forget that one either, all right? Amen, amen. All right. So I get married on Saturday evening, May the 27th at the Ash Street Baptist Church in Forest Park, Georgia. And as I'm holding my wife's hands before a preacher, I didn't say it exactly like this, but it was pretty close. Basically, I said this, Charlotte, you know, girl, there's a lot of nice women out there. They're pretty, they're smart, they're gifted, they're talented. There's a whole mess of them. But I want you to know something. I'm making a promise to you today. I'm making a promise today to these witnesses that are at our wedding. I'm, I'm making a promise to God. And I'm making a promise to our future children and grandchildren from this day forward. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to have eyes for only one lady. And that lady is always going to be you. In the same way, the Bible says there are a lot of things out there that want your eyes. They want your heart. They want your affection. But when everything is said and done, no, 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 no. You just glue your eyes to King Jesus. Why? He told you. He's the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one that got you in the race. He's the one that will get you to the finish line. Furthermore, don't miss this now. Don't miss this. He ran in a race. Say what? He ran in a race. Do you see the phrase that ends verse 1? The race that is set before us. Now look in the middle of verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was, there it is, set before him. God's son ran in a race. 
And where did the race take God's Son? To a cross on a hill called Calvary where He poured out His blood for the sins of the world. And what did He find about going to the cross? He found joy in it. Enduring the cross, He found joy in it. Furthermore, He counted the shame of it as nothing. Nothing. Why? Because He knew, number one, He was glorifying His Father. And he knew, number two, this was the only way he could save sinners like you and like me. So he found joy in the cross. He despised the shame of it. And quoting from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, he's now seated at the most prestigious place in all of heaven. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. So you just keep your eyes on Jesus as you run this race, but then you keep your mind on Jesus. Verse 3, consider him. It's the only imperative, by the way, in these three verses. It means to meditate upon, to think very, very carefully about. Consider Him. Meditate on Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that, number one, you won't grow weary. Number two, faint-hearted. I think we could paraphrase it today. So that you don't become discouraged and depressed and drop out of the race. Several years ago, I was home, and my doorbell rang, and I opened the door, and there were three Mormon missionaries. Now, I don't know about you, but I love it when Mormon missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody else come to my house. I mean, I like to go out and find people to share the gospel with, but it's really neat when God sends them to us. And let me say, listen, this is for free. Don't you ever be ugly to somebody knocking on your door like that. If you do, you dishonor Jesus, and shame on you, repent, and don't you ever do it again. So I don't know how to talk to them. Well, at least be sweet and kind and tell them, look, this is not a good time. But if you'll come back later, I'll be delighted to visit with you and get somebody to be there with you that knows how to share the gospel. You know, by the way, you do know how to share the gospel. And I'm fixing to show you that you do if you're saved. All right. So I said, guys, come on in. Glad to have you. And so they came in. And since it's my house, I do get to make the rules. And so I said, guys, I'll tell you what. I'm, I, I want to give you 15 minutes. In fact, what I did, I took off. I take it with me everywhere I go. My Ironman stopwatch. And I flipped it over to the uh, uh, timer. And I said, guys, I'm going to hit this watch. And I'm going to give you 15 minutes. I am not going to interrupt you even one time. And I want you to tell me how I can know that when I die, I'll go to heaven. Now, when you're finished, you're going to give me 15 minutes. And you're not going to interrupt me either. And I'll tell you what I believe you have to do to know that when you die, you'll go to heaven. So I hit my stop. Oh, and I, then I said, what about, and I learned this from Adrian Rogers. Adrian used to say, I tell you what, tell them you're on a plane that's about to crash and all you got is 15 minutes and that'll put a little urgency in their spine. And so I did. I said, guys, let's pretend we're on a plane that it's going to crash in 15 minutes. So in 15 minutes, we're all going to be dead. So do your best, get me to heaven. And I stopped. Well, they looked at each other like we're here in the house with a crazy man, which they maybe they were. But anyway, they looked at each other and then they said, OK, OK. He said, you, you, you go first. So the guy started. I never forget. He said, uh, well, well, Mr. Aiken, we believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet and his leader interrupted. He said, no, 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 no. You can't start there. That'll take way too long. He said, OK, OK. We believe that an angel named Moroni brought down golden tablets to Joseph Smith. And again, he said, no, 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 that won't work. And the next thing you know, they're fussing and fighting with each other about what is the right way to start and what is the right way to move forward to tell me about how you go to heaven. And I never said a word until there was one minute left. And I said, you got one minute. 
And then when it hit 10 seconds, I said 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I stopped them and I said, guys, we're dead. And you never told me how I could know that when I die, I'll go to heaven. And the leader looked at me and said, well, Mr. Aiken, we can't tell you how to go to heaven in 15 minutes. It takes a lot longer than that. And so I then said, well, guys, I got some really good news for you. I can tell you how you can know that you'll go to heaven. And I don't need 15 minutes. I only need about four or five. And you know what I did? I just shared my testimony. That's all I did. I shared that when I was a 10-year-old boy, I became aware of the fact that I was a sinner, that I could not save myself, but that Jesus loved me and that Jesus died on the cross for all of my sins and God raised him from the dead and that if I would repent of my sin and trust in him, he would save me. And I did and he did. And I said, guys, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. And the leader of those three missionaries looked at me and said, you really do believe you're going to heaven, don't you? I said, no, I don't believe I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus did for me. Well, then he looked at me and he said, can I ask you another question? I said, ask me anything you want. What do you do for a living? <laughs> and I did not lie. I said, well, I'm a teacher, which I am a teacher. He then said, where? And I said, well, I teach at the seminary up around the corner at Southeastern Seminary. And he said, oh, <laughs> that explains a lot. But then he said, you're going to be teaching tomorrow? I said, I will. I teach systematic. I did then. I teach preaching now, but I taught systematic theology. Then he said, can we come to your class? I said, sure you can. Uh, you won't be rude, will you? No, no, sir. We'll be quiet. We just want to come to your class. I said, great. Tomorrow's interestingly on the doctor of Christology, the person and work of Christ. So they came to my class the next day, sat right here on the front row to the right of, uh, from the platform. I taught the class, got through, and they said, well, wow, that was, that was great. What are you going to do now? I said, well, I'm going to chapel. Well, can we go to chapel? I said, sure you can. So they came to chapel, sat on the front row on the right-hand side there too. And that day just so happened that the preacher was a man named Charles Page, who for many years was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charlotte, North Carolina. And it just so happened that on that day, Charles Page preached from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, I don't remember anything he said in that message except the very end. And it's what I'm going to leave with you this morning as well. He finished preaching. And by the way, he didn't know that there were three Mormon missionaries there. But his message could not have been more perfect. Because he got to the end of his message and he said, Brothers and sisters, you want to know what the bottom line is for Hebrews 12, 1 through 3? It's really very simple. Anything in life that gets your eyes off of Jesus, mark it down. It's not of God. And he prayed. And folks, that's right. Anything in life, I don't care what it is, that gets your eyes off of Jesus, mark it down. It's not of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that got you in the race. He's the one that will keep you in the race. And He is the one who will get you safely to the finish line. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the promise of these verses that if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He indeed is the author and finisher of faith. He gets us in the race. He keeps us in the race. He gets us home. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that for whatever reason 
has never placed their eyes on Jesus that first time for salvation, it is my prayer that today they'll make the greatest of all decisions by turning their eyes away from any other thing that they may have thought could save them. And Lord, they'd place their eyes on Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, he paid the price. He dealt with our sins. And he loves us and longs to have us as part of his family, as those that are running the race. And Lord, it is my prayer that they would make that decision today and trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save them. Lord, it may be that today there are believers here, brothers and sisters in Christ, who would say, Danny, I know I'm in the race, but I also know I'm not running the race as well as I once did. And I need to get rid of some weights. I need to get rid of my unbelief. And I need to put my faith and trust once again fully and completely in Jesus, not just to save me, but to keep me. And Lord, we're going to have a time of invitation where men and women, boys and girls can come here and there'll be counselors here at the front. They can come to these steps and kneel and pray. And Lord, as I always say when I preach, I don't want anyone to respond to my voice. But I pray no one will say no to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, as we sing, may we sing with joy. And may people respond publicly as you speak to their heart and lead them. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.